This Westwards mini masterclass is a production of Westwards, the Western Sydney Literature Organisation. For more information on Westwards and what we do, please go to westwards.com.au. Hello and welcome to today's mini masterclass with me, James Roy. I'm your host, and today I'm talking to Ali Whitelock, who is a Scottish poet who lives in uh, in Australia, in the south coast of Sydney. Uh, she's a poet who writes what I would probably call quirky poetry. Um, that's that's probably a bit unfair, isn't it, Ali, to call it quirky poetry? I don't mind uh, it being called quirky. You don't mind quirky? Okay. I like it, yeah, I like it. Just call I'm, it quirky. Well, I'm going to go with it then, because... Um, <laughs> <laughs> Ali's debut collection was called And My Heart Crumples Like a Coke Can. Uh, and then her latest book, The Lactic Acid in the Calves of Your Despair, which I really love, um, has come out uh, this year. No. Mm, yeah, March. Yeah, yeah March. That's right. The day of the shutdown. And uh, she's also written a memoir, Poking Seaweed, seaweed with a Stick and Running Away from the Smell. Um, now, what really impressed me about Ali's... Uh, bio here was where I saw that your poetry has appeared in the moth because that's a big deal isn't it mm. yeah I know I was um I was as floored as as you are James <laughs> <laughs> and then I was floored and I think at the time when I submitted that I I, I knew that the moth was a thing but I didn't really know just how much of a great thing it, it was to be honest and and I sent it and was very surprised to get an email back saying they'd, they'd take the take the poem and um yeah it it was a great surprise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, um, I'm going to uh, let everyone know that there might be a bit of a language warning on this particular podcast. We're going to try and keep it, um, keep it PG-13 if we can. But look, it's a little bit hard because uh, when I talk about quirky poetry, I'm just going to read some of the titles from your, your latest book, Ali. Um, mm -hmm. In the Silence of the Custard, Now is the Modem of Our Discontent, Kmart Sells Out of Cheap Fans Made in China, um, steaming pile of shite, uh, and um, natural born goat killer, uh, and seen from train spotting as it relates to self. And I only watched train spotting again just yesterday. The kumquats of Christmas past, which sounds dirty, but it's not. Um, so Ali, welcome to uh, to today. To Thank the you. So Thank it's you. a long, um, long introduction, and you haven't actually got to say very much yet. That's okay. I'm happy yep. to listen. It's very, it's very interesting to hear the titles being read out by another human. Right. Do they sound different out loud than they do in your head? Oh, they sound, they sound different coming out of someone else's mouth, I think. Yeah, it's a good thing. I'm very happy to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> when, when I originally contacted you to do this, I, it was because in an email that you sent me about something different, you'd, um, you'd mentioned that you had, a, uh, had written a poem that was basically what you called a found poem and it was putting together a whole bunch of quotes by our esteemed uh, prime minister, Mr. Scott Morrison. Mm -hmm. um, and it was a bit of a, it was, well, it was satire really, wasn't it? Or it was, yeah, it was mm -hmm. a political poem effectively. Um, but it kind of piqued my interest when you said a found poem, because uh, we recently did a podcast with, uh, with Harry Lang, where we talked about getting ideas and, and that sort of thing. But that sounded to me like something a little bit different. Mm-hmm. And you and I have spoken quite recently about things like slam and how, yeah. and our reservations about how poetic some of that might be. Mm -hmm. 
So I thought we'd talk about some of the more quirky approaches to poetry, if you're happy to do that. Yeah, yeah, do, of course. So let's talk about your journey into poetry. How did that go? And how did you, at what point did you diverge into this kind of quirkiness? Well, um, so my, my introduction to poetry came in the Blue Mountains. And, you know, there's a little bookshop in Wentworth Falls. I don't know if it's still there, but, uh, and I just wandered in there this day and I was up there for the day and, and I was just browsing through the books. And this, I guess I should start by saying I've always been someone who said, I was one of those people that said, I hate poetry. You know, my whole life long, I hated it. It wasn't for me. And, and so I had sort of con- convinced myself that this was the case. And then this day in this bookshop, this poetry book was sitting on a pile of secondhand books and it was called Eight American Poets. And for some reason, I picked that up and, and I looked in it and my mind was blown wide open because I didn't know poetry could be that. So I was, I guess I was first exposed in that book to confessional poets, Anne Sexton and John Berryman, who remain two of my favourites. And yeah, I, I guess, you know, John Berryman's poem, Life, Friends, is Boring, We Must Not Say So. I didn't know you could say that in a poem. I didn't know that that was even poem worthy, you know? And so that just really, um, that, that just really changed everything for me. So and, what did you think poetry was then, if you didn't think it was saying things as direct as that? Daffodils. Daffodils, um, oldie worldy language. I mean, just the kind of, um, the, the, the canon that you get taught when you're in school, you know, which you know, most of us in those kind of working class schools and didn't really there didn't seem to be much in the poetry that we were being taught anyway that that spoke to us and I didn't know poetry was something that was meant to speak to you I just thought it was this thing that sat at an angle to you in your life and then when I read that John Berryman poem uh, I I was it was like another person's soul speaking directly to my own soul I have never felt that before ever and it just changed everything for me. From then on, I started writing short things and I wondered if these short things could be poetry because I spent my whole life saying I hate poetry. So now I'm going to have to, you know, take a big slice of humble pie and go, oh, okay, I get it. Sorry, everybody. <laughs> well, uh, that, that's actually quite refreshing to hear you say that, to say that you came to it from a place of, of um, scepticism, I suppose. Probably what you're describing is that you, you came at poetry from a, an angle where you were going, it can't say these things. It, it, it mm. needs to be just this beautiful moment. Of, kind of floral kind of, you know, springtime and early autumn light and all of those things. And I, I don't relate to any of that. <laughs> and that's okay. I don't need to, but I get that some people do and that's okay too. But for me, I loved this grittiness, this, this, this mention that death, that life might not be worth living. I mean, who puts that in poetry? Well, it turns out a lot of people do. I just didn't know. <laughs> so how long did it take you to write your first poem after you found that book? I, I guess maybe, maybe a, few, a few weeks later, I wrote a short thing, but I wasn't sure if I could call that a poem. I just wasn't sure. And so eventually I was still writing memoir, 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 second memoir. And then I, um, I thought I would, try and, I would try and find out more about what it means to write a poem. So I went along to a thing at the New South Wales Writers' Centre, which was a six-week discussion on poetry. Um, it was Martin Longford ran it. So one night a week we went along. 
Martin talked about poetry, it was really just a discussion about poetry. And we would take in a thing if we wanted to and read it out and 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 he's asking everyone, why are you here? And I was like, oh, I'm here because I, I'm not sure. I've written some short things. I don't know if I can call them poems in all seriousness. And uh, and so I read out the first thing one night and, and he said, yeah, that's a poem. Oh, okay. Well, congratulations, you can go home now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. <laughs> so, um, let's, let's, well, in that case, let's talk a little bit about your process because um, people have their own processes. What's yours with, uh, is it, does, I suppose it varies from poem to poem, doesn't it? You know, yeah, what is the process? Well, I will say one thing, it takes a long time to write a poem. And I'm okay with that because I sort of, I love the process of doing it so much, but typically I'll either, a line will occur to me, a kind of sort of quirky, odd line will occur, and I will build a poem around that, you know, just so that I can use that line. Or there will be a sense of injustice, let's say, you know, so something that, that brings about a feeling, a great sort of emotional response of either love and hate, sadness and happiness, you know, so quite often in my poems, there will be death and sadness, but there will also be humour. And, and somehow, you know, those two things are important to me. Not in every poem, obviously, but I think a lot of them, they'll contain sadness and happiness. So, yeah, so the idea will occur, the idea will occur to me and then I'll just start putting pen to paper and I will just um, immediately start to write out something, you know, um, because I think, um, I know a lot of people need to sit back and think about the poem for a while, let it form in their minds. And, and that's, that's not how I do it. I need to write down the line as soon as it occurs to me. And then I push my pen and I just keep pushing it and pushing it and pushing it. And it's almost as if I'm trying to encourage the idea to come in all its fullness onto the page. So I'm kind of coaxing it and coaxing it and coaxing it and coaxing it until I end up with something which kind of is sort of resembling the bare bones of the poem. And then I'll go about sculpting that and sculpting that and sculpting that. And, and then I go about ironing it, ironing it out, you know, just trying to get all the wrinkles out of it. And that can take weeks and it can sometimes take months, which is probably sound ridiculous, but that's how it is. How do you know when it's done? Well, it's so funny you should ask that question. Cause I was, I was just thinking about that this morning. And I think I know it's done when I can't look at it anymore. You know, and, and it's that point in time where if you do too much to it, you're going to stuff it up and you're going to lose whatever magic you think is in there. So it's kind of like for me, I just seem to know that the point comes to it. I don't want to look at it anymore. You know, I've nursed this baby. It could have been getting nursed for six or eight weeks, you know, by this stage. And it's just time, time to let it go. When I honestly feel I can't make it any better than it is. It's ready for it to get its own flat and move out. <laughs> Exactly. Can't bear so, the look of it anymore. <laughs> and then there's the sadness of the parent waving the, the poem off, you know, and seeing them sort of drive down the street with a mattress hanging out the back of the boot, you know, and you go, oh, it's finished now. Oh, I've got to start another one. Does anger play a part in your poetry? Oh, yeah, I think, I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm going to say, yeah, I think so. And, and maybe some readers of my work will go, what? Yeah, it's full of anger. Uh, yeah, I think there's anger in there. Yeah, there's a anger. I don't think it's, I guess it depends on your experience of anger and violence, really. They don't appear to be overly angry and violent to me, but 
perhaps to someone who's never experienced anger and a bit of violence then. In, in your author's note at the front of the book, you talk about your relationship with your father and how he died unexpectedly and you, had a, mm. you didn't have the best relationship and you didn't feel mm. that he was even the best person. And then there's a poem in here about him having his head beaten in with a hammer. Yeah, that's quite violent, isn't it? Is that a true story? <laughs> yeah, 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 everything's true. It's 100% true. So he had a business partner who, uh, they had a dispute, just a small business, you know, two guys and a couple of employees. But in those days, or certainly in those kind of like, you know, socioeconomically deprived areas, disputes weren't settled in a sort of polite, um, assertive way. It was, I'll meet you in the car park tonight at eight o'clock. You know, and so that was how disputes were settled. And we, I went there with my father to, um, I just wanted to go with him because I was worried about what might happen. And I was only 17 or something at the time, but I went with him <clears throat> and the, 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 uh, both our cars pulled into the driveway of this, this pub and my father got out, the other guy got out. I sort of turned my head away for a moment and when I looked back, the, the, the his friend was on top of him with a hammer smashing his head and and smashing his kneecaps and then when it was over you know i i had to sort of drag his body into the car and get him to the police the hospital all of that stuff so it's true and I, yeah and now that we're talking about that i guess um that is a violent a violent poem i i don't think there's too much graphic detail in it but well, there's a bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's true and it's, um, you know. But when I, talk, when I talk about anger, I guess I'm talking more about the, um, the fury that you feel, you know, politically or whatever. And, and uh -huh. for example, the uh -huh. one you talked about, it, uh, we talked about earlier. Yeah. Do you think that poetry has, a, has an advantage over other kinds of writing in expressing that kind of opinion? I don't know that it has an advantage. I think it has a place. Um, and I think, um, I guess it depends on the person reading it, you know, and, and what and how someone likes to get their information. I mean, of course, I'm, uh, I'd love to think that poetry can, can reach people in ways that perhaps other pieces of literature or media can't. But I guess, you know, what I was saying before, poetry, I think, it's the soul of the poet hoping to speak to the soul of the reader in a way and maybe maybe other forms of media and, and don't do that i don't know so i don't know that i can say that it's it's better at doing that than any other form we talked about the found poetry how how does that how does that differ as a form like that how does that differ from one of your planned okay. or one of your one of yeah. your free range poems if you like where you take yeah. an idea and roll, run with it yeah, so this, this particular poem that we're talking about is about the bushfire season that we just came through mm. and, and the, the government's inaction and SCOMO being in Hawaii and this and that. I live in a bushfire region myself, although we weren't affected at all by any, any fire, so I'll just make that clear up front. But I was still glued to local ABC radio every day because there's an escarpment there, it's covered in bush, you know, and you have to be alert to what's going on. So I had the radio going on with local ABC radio in case we were told to evacuate or whatever. 
and and then I would turn to the Sydney Morning Herald or the ABC News and I would see Skomo in Hawaii and then I'd turn back to the ABC radio and you would have Shane Fitzsimmons making announcements on local radio such as if you are in or close to the bush leave now and there were people that had to hear that and people who had to act on that and I could not I just I had this explosion in my chest that the guy who was running the country was in Hawaii and 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 not <clears throat> not being just not responding to what needed to be responded to here in Australia while people were suffering and the country was on fire and I was so furious and I was also so terrified and I was also desperately sad all at once and it was it, it sort of came out of my chest like a, a rocket. I didn't need to put any of my own words in it because Scott Morrison would have said something um, and I would just write down that line that he said. Then there would be a line from the Rural Fire Service, one of which was, um, if, you are, if you are trapped, imagine this, you know, you're listening to the radio and the, the message was, if you're trapped in your car, face towards the oncoming fire front, get down below window level. This is your highest priority. I still get the hairs on the back of my neck standing on end when I hear that because, you know, that that message was put out for someone trapped in a car to hear face the oncoming fire front. It was so horrific to me. And so I was writing these things down. And so as I would write down a line from the the rural fire service, and then I would slice in a line from SCOMO and then cut back to, you know, the RFS. And so I hadn't written a found poem before. I didn't really know I was writing a found poem, but it turns out that's what it's called. So I just sliced these lines, these statements from SCOMO, the fire service, and also from things that people were tweeting about on Twitter. You know, Twitter is one of those um, <clears throat> places where people, they share ideas, but they're all, there's also a lot of nastiness in there. But I became struck at that time that people were tweeting survival tips, how to survive in a bushfire, you know. And I read one woman's tweet, she said, for anyone in the bushfire, wrap yourself in woolen blankets that will protect you from the heat of the fire. I don't know, that just, that just um, blows my mind that people were putting out these messages and there were people that had to hear them and there were people who would have been perhaps racing to the cupboard to look for woolen blankets. Mm. You know what I mean? And it was, so all of those things just converged on this, this poem. It just sort of exploded on me. It's the quickest poem I've ever written. And... And then, yeah, and I, and I put it on Twitter and it got about 8,000 views on YouTube, which is, you know, a lot for me. And Malcolm Turnbull saw it, read it, retweeted it, commented on it, the, how powerful it was. And then it ended up on the Bolt Report on Sky News. And, and the panel on the Bolt Report, Andrew Bolt played it on Sky News because <laughs> I made a little video of it as well. Mm. He played it on Sky News and then he turned to his panellists and said, so, you know, are you, are you moved by this? And one of the panellists says, oh, I'm moved to vomit. And then he turned to the other one and, and her comment was, well, it's not Tennyson, is it? You know, so it was kind of those, you know, I was happy with any exposure whatsoever. You know, it was interesting. They, they played it because they were um, anti-Malcolm Turnbull. So because Malcolm had picked it up, you know. It brings me to the question, um, 
the role of the poet in this then isn't really as a writer, it's more as a curator, isn't it? No, it's almost like a transcriber, you know, because I didn't need to, it was almost like, here are these lines, here are the things that are being said. Can everybody see how dramatic, how tragic, how, how much suffering's going on here? How, and, and it just sort of packaged up in such a way that each line would almost butt up against the other and joke the reader, which is what, how I was feeling listening to local ABC radio on, on one hand and turning to the radio you know, the, the Sydney Morning Herald, let's say, and, and, and listening to Scomo be interviewed from Hawaii. And, and, and despite all of that, him still making, uh, him st still refusing to accept that it had anything to do with climate change. Sorry, I had a point I was going to make. It's like a hundred years ago now, doesn't it? It does. There's so, so, much has, sort of, so much has changed. And it does, it does you know, as a, as a sidebar, I hope we get back to talking about climate change and we don't just sort of go, well, that was, that was last year's crisis. We've got a new one yeah. now. Well, at least the commission, the Royal Commission has opened now, but apparently there have been 69 Royal Commissions into bushfires since 1930. Right. Now, so, I mean, to stay with that for a moment, that is singing to the choir a little bit though, isn't it? The people who are reading your poems, uh, until, it, until it gets on the Bolt Report, the people who are reading your poem are probably, for the most part, on board anyway. Yeah, yeah, totally. So, what, so what's the point? Is it just making you feel better? Oh, yeah, yeah, 100%. <laughs> I guess, you know, I, I, I write, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to say we all write for ourselves, but I think as one writes, one can only try to please oneself. You know, I think I couldn't sit down and write a poem that might please a group of, I don't know, cardiologists. <laughs> cardiologists. That sounds like a good idea for a poem, actually, a poem for cardiologists. <laughs> Um, so I guess we're all writing the things that make us the wildest, the happiest, the saddest, the most fortunate, you know, for me anyway, that's what poetry is. It's a, it's a reflection of me and, and why, why I want to spend my time writing it. Who knows? I just like doing that. And, and I do it. And I obviously, I hope that the work will connect to some people in the world. And if it does, that's awesome. But first and foremost, it's, I need to get this out of me, you know, and so that bushfire poem was, I need to get this out of me. And then it goes wherever it goes, you know. Um, I guess that one of the good things about that poem was it, it was published in an American magazine pretty much overnight and after I wrote it. And so people who perhaps weren't aware of what was happening in Australia, although most of the world was, got to read and be horrified as well. And what was the, what was the response overseas? Because I kind of imagine, I, I imagine that, if you're from somewhere, you know, we, we see, say, uh, news reports about the president of Brazil mm. acting like a complete goose. Mm. And, we, and they put down the facts of the, the situation. You know, he, he's gone to a, a rally where people are packed together and he's taken his mask off and said it's all nonsense and all the rest. And we sit back and go, that's kind of surreal and weird. Was that the kind of response you got to this when it went to, say, America? The, the, were people going, hang on, you're, I th I think your leader is not even there kind of thing? Yeah, I think people were aware of the facts of it anyway because it had already gone global. That was, I mean, was, this, well, this fire... On fire. <laughs> this fire yeah. was so catastrophic. The whole world knew about it. The whole world was watching it every day. You know, we were the front page of the New York Times, weren't we? It was, so everyone was aware of the facts of it. But I think that level of... Scott Morrison is in Hawaii, the rural fire service statements, tweets from people saying, if you, you know, if, you, if you're too close to the fire, wrap yourself in woolen blankets, brought home, 
an emotion, like a kind of, I feel as though, and I've heard and people have said that it, it made it more immediate in a way, you know, it's like, it pulls focus like, on it, really. Like, it's a bit like when you, when you read a headline of, you know, 10 people killed, let's say. It doesn't always hit us because we're so used to that. But when you hear it from, that, from somebody else that it was their brother or their sister who died in a tragedy or my friend's house was burnt down, well, that brings something new. You know, I think it kind of gets into the heart a bit more as opposed to a headline, which can do, can do, um, can get in there, but some, there's something about more, the emotion of the poem, I think, brought it home. We, I interviewed um, hmm. Pete Schmigel a few weeks ago, and I don't know if you know Pete, but Pete is the, um, the man who, he's the CEO of, uh, he used to be the CEO of Lifeline, but his, his mother died in New York of COVID. And he wrote hmm. a piece in the Sydney Morning Herald about how the fact that, all these people had names and of course the the new york times did exactly this a few days ago where they printed the a thousand names of people with a little bio on there and i think it's a really powerful one i was so struck by that front that image on the new york times the other day and i just thought that is the most powerful thing i've seen in this whole since this whole pandemic began yeah well that's that's the point that pete makes too is that that aerial shot of them putting the bodies in the in the mass grave effectively out on the island. And he said, it's easy to look at that from a distance and go, okay, that's a lot of boxes. But when you consider that each one of those boxes contains a person who has a family and, and so forth. Mm-hmm. You know, anyone who's listening and yourself, Ali, I'd recommend you go and have a, have a read and a listen to that particular interview. Oh, yeah, very interesting. Yeah. So Frank Capra, who is the uh, director of It's a Beautiful Life and Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, I think, was him as well. He, he had a lot to say about the intersection between the artist and the audience. He said this, if the audience gets everything, if they see the photography and notice it is good, then the story goes out the window. But if you become involved with the lives of the actors and forget that you are seeing mechanical devices on a huge screen, forget the make-believe, this is the job of the director to involve the audience with the actors. And he said a lot of other things like that. Mm, At what point yeah. does the poem becomes, become the reader's and no longer yours? Well, I think uh, just on that point, it's interesting, isn't it? And I think in recent years, what I've come to understand is with a poem, you don't try to read it and you don't try to understand it. You just surrender yourself to it. You know, and I guess that's maybe a little bit like what, you know, Frank Capra's talking about in that you don't need to know that it was written in this way or that there are certain rules here or that whatever, whatever. It's, it's just this idea that you, sh- you, you know, try to disengage your left brain and enter into the poem or let the poem wash over you, I guess, in a way. I can't remember what your question was, but I just said what I said anyway. Basically, <laughs> basically I was saying, what, at what point does that poem stop being yours and become the readers to make what they will of it yeah at the at the point where i say it's finished i suppose you know when i'm finished with it it's then it goes out there and it's for for other people to make of it what they will and i think um when i i understood that when i when i wrote my first book which was a memoir it was a terrifying experience to imagine that was going out into the world and my husband at one stage said to me something which has stuck with me all this time. He said, once you've written it and put it out there, it's no longer up to you what people think of it. It's no longer 
it's irrelevant. I know you said that all publicity is good publicity and, um, and, and it ends up on the Bolt Report. Mm. But was there still a moment at that point where you went, I don't like this. They're not giving this the, uh, they're not reading this the way that I intended it to be read. No, I, did, I didn't feel that at any point in time at all. Because I had, a, I, at first when somebody told me, oh my God, your poem's playing on the Bolt Report. I'm like, what? I was, I was a bit terrified because I expected to get trolled by more right-wing people who were fine with what was happening with the, with the climate. You know, and I'm not a climate activist and I'm not a political poet. Maybe I should just say that up front. I'm not someone who sort of gets on my, just this particular summer just terrified me. So I wrote that. So, um, no, in some ways I just kind of laughed when I listened to these panelists say what they had to say and they were ridiculing it. It didn't matter to me. You know, I, 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 I certainly don't need the um, approval of Andrew Bolton as panelists, like, you know, so... It was just, for me, it was a little bit of, I was a little bit of flying the ointment that day, I think, for them. They were forced to play my poem. Okay, so that's the win for me. It was mentioned uh, on the telly. Win for me. They ridiculed it. I even loved that they ridiculed it. Because I guess I just said, yeah, it, it really speaks to your, your ignorance. You know, so I was totally okay with that. Were you tempted at any point after that to take the words that they'd said and turn their words into a, a founder <laughs> poem and just sort of go all meta on them? I hadn't thought about that. <laughs> <laughs> then they'd, they'd really lose their minds then. They're like, oh, they're using my own words against me. That's not fair. You can't do that. Yeah. I give that a go. What other, what other, do you have any other kind of interesting ways of approaching a poem like the found poem at all? Sometimes, I mean, I don't know that it's interesting or, or anything else, but, you know, I wrote... Um, we I will wrote, be the judge of that, won't we? <laughs> okay. <laughs> and the answer is no. No, I... Um, recently, I was... Um, I was commissioned by the Red Room Company and the Art Gallery of New South Wales to write three poems in response to three, artwork, three artworks in a, a new exhibition at the gallery. And... The minute that I was asked, because I'm so kind of free range, as you as you called, I'm a free range poet. I don't want to be caged in. Sure. I don't want to. I don't want to follow any rules. I just want to do my thing. And a barn fed poet. <laughs> <laughs> and I. Um, so anyway, they they said, you know, would you be interested? And of course, I said yes immediately because who doesn't want to be commissioned to write a poem? I've never I've never been in, asked to do such a thing ever. So it was a huge honour, but the minute I said yes, I just was terrified. How am I going to respond to something that someone has asked me to respond to? I never had to do that. I just choose to write about this cup or I write about my father having his head smashed in, whatever. And they have, that has always been my decision. And here I was faced with going into the gallery, looking at three images hanging on a wall and, okay, come up with something. Oh my God, terrifying. So terrifying. Did you enjoy the process when it happened? Oh, I loved it. And it's been one of the most um, enriching experiences in my writing life because I was forced to dig deep into a place I didn't even know existed in me. And so I was allowed to write without any boundaries, but I needed to respond to this, these three artworks, you know. So, and so it was just interesting. So I just, I just sat and looked at the work and tried to kind of you know, clear your mind. What is this photograph saying to me? What does it mean to me? And it was endlessly fascinating and endlessly terrifying at the same time because the terrifying aspect was, what if I can't produce anything? You know, 
what if I what if nothing comes out of my pen? And so I worked, I worked super hard and I usually write without time limits as well. And here I had seven weeks to write three poems. Oh my God. <laughs> I actually had to sit down with a piece of paper and put a timetable down. Okay, image one, you've got seven days to get the bones of something down. Who knows what that's going to look like? You know, seven days later, image two, seven days later, image three. And then that left me with four weeks to chisel them, to make them into something. And, you know, it was hard, hard work. And I've, I never felt so exhilarated to come out with something, which I think is, is, you know, I mean, one always hopes, I guess, the latest poem that you've written is your best work, right? So those are my latest poems and I think they're the best. And I can't believe that um, I was able to do it. I just, you know, so. I mean, I guess the key is when you say you stood and looked at those pictures and went, what does this say to me? I mean, that's the self-indulgence of the poet, but it's also why we want to see it, isn't it? Because we want to understand someone's thinking in a really succinct kind of way. So I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit because you, you said you held up your beautiful orange cup. <laughs> I remember a friend of mine, uh, he, and his, he and his girlfriend, his then girlfriend, um, visited the Blue Mountains and we were, she's Irish, she's from County Donegal and mm -hmm. we were walking past um, a, a garage sale and there were some cups that were that colour and she mm -hmm. went, oh Rodney, they're awfully Protestant. <laughs> no, that's Scottish, that was a Scottish accent. <laughs> they're awfully Protestant, Rodney, yeah, but anyway. Um, so I'm going to put you on the spot. You said, you know, write a poem about that cup. You obviously aren't going to write a poem about how, or how orange the cup is, are you? What, what's your process you're going to take from writing something about that cup? Where are we going with that? Mm, yeah, thanks for putting me on the spot. That's um, okay. Well, I need seven days, so you have to keep this running <laughs> for seven days. <laughs> I mean, if somebody asks me to write about this cup, somehow I'm going to personify the cup, you right. know. So there has to be an emotional experience that I can somehow link to the cup. And that could be the last time I drank from this cup was blah 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 i don't know where that might go you know i'm in, right now i go i go to the side room after my father died in the hospital where the the nurse had laid out the cup of tea the custard creams for the you know for the family to come together because he just died right and we'd been with him so then you get your obligatory ridiculous cup of stewed tea and and so i would i would probably do something like that you know i wouldn't describe the cup i wouldn't necessarily i mean now that your friend has pointed out that it's quite protestant i'd be quite keen to steal that line with no shame whatsoever so yeah or i might go orange cups and you know in the old days in scotland there used to be things called orange walks that was when all the protestants got together and walked through the catholic areas of scotland banging the drums and playing loud music and so that happened in scotland as well as ireland oh yes every wow. week that was the orange walk and then there was the alternative walk which was the um the the hibernian walk and that was the catholics walking through the you know the protestant areas oh, of um, course because celtic and um celtic and rangers are very much traditionally along religious yeah. lines weren't they yeah that's right and so when i was growing up you would often be asked which team do you support so was it Rangers or Celtic, you know, and that was um, very, very often asked question. And that would, that would then inform the person asking what, what religion you were, because it was in, what religion you were back then was important. 
but going back to the green, the, the orange cup. So, you know, I might then, the orange cup might then take me to a memory of these orange walks, you know, and the women on those orange walks were, always wore white crocheted gloves and white crocheted beanies. It's ridiculous. Mm. And so, you know, you've kind of, and now that I think about it, there's a design on, not that anybody can see it, but there's a design on this cup, which is almost like a sort of crocheted design. So you've opened up a world of possibilities to, to me. I, I expect the credit on this particular one. You and your friend. I'll credit you both. <laughs> <laughs> Look, Ali Whitelock, thank you so much for talking to us and giving us a little bit of an insight into the crazy places that poetry takes you and takes those of us who, who love it. Have you got a website? I do, alliwhitelock.com. A-L-I-W-H-I-T-E-L-O-C-K.com. Yes, yeah, that's, that's it. Well, congratulations on your new book. Uh, thank look you. forward to talking to you again soon. And uh, thank you, and we'll talk to you later. Lovely. Thank you so much for having me. Uh,